<laughs> Doesn't mean you're chicken or anything. You're just... And then I thought I'd record it, and I'll throw this up on my website so people didn't get a chance to, to get here tonight. Okay. All right. That's it. Let's get started. Um, we love we love the Book of Mormon, don't we? Yeah. Sure. We want to become more converted to the Book of Mormon. We want to study the Book of Mormon. We need to be able to read, drink deeply from the Book of Mormon. Um, and so I'm always grateful when we put our emphasis on making sure that we understand and read and are conversant with the Book of Mormon. Uh, is there a downside? Right, can't talk to who? You can't talk to any other religion. That's right. You know the Bible, Let me tell you about Nephi. Well, <laughs> yes. Ne Nephi, was that who that was? Um, you, you're right. So, so it has actually come, I think, at a cost of our uh, of our biblical scholarship, and that that's always a little bit concerning. Um, and and so I think somewhere in here, so and you see it, don't you? When it's like, okay, if we're gonna if if gospel doctrine is going to be about Book of Mormon this year, woo, we're in, right? It's about Old Testament. Woohoo! Woohoo! Oh, I, listen, I love the Old Testament. It is so they're so human. They are so human. Um, but one of the things that we have found is there's some there's some roadblocks for LDS people to be able to utilize the Bible the way that I think it, the Lord certainly intends it to be. So I, that's kind of what I want to go to tonight. It's kind of we're being given at a number of levels by the by church and by scholars and by prophets so, some uh, we're lowering some of the barriers to get us into the beautiful truths that are contained in the in the Bible and by doing that it actually shines even a better light on the Book of Mormon so um, so let's just kind of review for just a little bit a second okay how did we get how did we get the Bible we got started with Constantine right so how did Constantine do this yeah. Well, it was out there. Yeah. Right about. You're really close. Well, I, I can't see them because I'm I'm looking this way and they're. They turn around and look. Whoa! Yes. You're right. There was somebody over here. Yeah. He held the ecumenical council because he wanted to galvanize the Roman Empire, and the only instrument that he had to use that could successfully accomplish that is Christianity. So we called all priests and ministers from all over the entire empire, right? and they made decisions in terms of what would be retained in the scriptures and what would be removed. So for instance, <laughs> Baptists believe, because of one line in Revelation, that the scriptures are now as they always have been. Right. But revelations historically on a non-denominational non basis have been in and out, in and out, in and out all the centuries. So anybody who knows anything about Christian history, which most believers don't, they don't know what they have in terms of the Bible. And, 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 and where it came from, right? So... So uh, to complicate this even further, I don't want to make this too much of a history lesson, but I think we need to kind of understand what we're up against. Uh, so much of the Old Testament, uh, scholars now believe, kind of the first five books of, of Moses, Kings, Chronicles, 
even though it was written down in some form, in, in, in oral history and scraps of this, it wasn't formally written until they were in exile in Babylon, after Lehi left. Doesn't help that Lehi takes the brass plates with him as well, but, but, we, but it has a real Babylonian stamp on, on what's in the Old Testament. Um, then in the, uh, in, in then around 250 BC, uh, they start to, they start to uh, translate this into Greek, and this gives us the Septuagint, okay, which is the Hebrew Bible in Greek, in Koine uh, Greek. Uh, New Testament is actually, we're, what we're going to get out of the work of Constantine is a Latin Vulgate, could be about 383 AD, and they were just kind of pulling together uh, scraps and bits and pieces. Um, anybody know right off the top of your head the very first book of the New Testament uh, that was written? Go. I know it's going to be one you're not going to know. The very first book that we have, that, that we have, that goes back to the very first one that was written, actually, believe it or not, was First Thessalonians. And Galatians right about the same period of time. Uh, the book of Mark uh, is, at that moment, though the book of Mark is being performed as a performance. It's a play. And if you read the book of Mark, it flows like a play. Okay, so the book of Mark is being performed. It's not written until 60 A.D., uh, then Matthew is about 10 years after that, and then Luke is about 10 years after that, and John is about two decades after that. Okay? Uh, so when, the, when uh, Constantine and those that are putting together the Bible, they're actually pulling older documents, but they don't have the original documents on any of these. Okay? Um, so what that means then is that... Um, let me finish up here. So that means that now we go for centuries, and what we have is the is the Bible as put together in that ecumenical council, uh, but it was never done in, in English until the time of William Tyndale. Uh, so uh, in 1526, uh, William Tyndale publishes uh, not it isn't words like. He's doing it in Worms, is Worms, Germany. Um, why is he doing it in Germany since he's English? Right. Yes, absolutely. So if you have never read... Okay, yeah, if, if you're looking back, the, the Catholic Church... Uh, believed it was partly control and partly belief in terms of um, kind of the sacredness of scripture is that uh, the common people weren't allowed to have the Bible. And for, mo for the most part, especially like those in England, they were reading English if they did read, but the Bibles were all in Latin, right? They're all using the Latin Vulgate. So a church might have one copy of the scriptures in Latin, nobody reads it, the priest tells them what it is. William Tyndale, a priest in uh, the church, decides that this is, he, he wants the common people to have it. Uh, he's threatened with death. He goes off to, uh, to the continent to get it translated. If you've never read Fire in the Bones, uh, it's a book that you just ought to, you got to have. 
uh, and it's the story of William Tyndale publishing secretly the the book, the, the books of the Bible, uh, and then transporting them in bales of hay and grain and things into England, and they're smuggling copies of like the Sermon on the Mount. People are carrying it around, hidden with, at night. When the when soldiers aren't around, they will like huddle up around the fire and read the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. There's a story of one lady that uh, is caught with a Sermon on the Mount uh, up her sleeve that they then capture, and she is then uh, hung and burned at the stake because that was a that was a punishable by death kind of thing. And ultimately, that's what will happen to William Tinsdale is that he will publish, they will find his friend of his will give him up, they will take, haul him back to England, and he will be, uh, he will be burned at the stake. Okay? Um, but that gives us 1526, uh, 1530, the Pentateuch is finally published. Right after that, that's the first five books of the, the Bible. Um, so, after all, after Tyndale and all these Christian martyrs are killed for having copies of the Bible, you get King James breaking away from all that, saying we are now going to do it, but we will do it right, and we're going to get together all our scholars, and we're going to put together the King James Bible. Uh, and so the scholars are commissioned in 1604 uh, to put the Bible together. Uh, now, it's important to know that so much, we think somewhere between about 70 to 80 percent of what we get, especially in the New Testament, is William Tyndale. Do you know that we, we use William Tyndale's words a lot? You, you don't know that it's Tyndale, but it really is. When he was translating from the Greek and he's going to put it into English, he would do things like, uh, the Greek says that, that the Spirit was going to talk kind of softly and not overbearing. How do I put that into English? Let's call, uh, the spirit talked with a still, small voice. That's William Tyndale. That was his choice of words about how he would frame what he was reading from the Greek. Is that an accurate and then it ends up in coming through Joseph Smith, right, into the Book of Mormon. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. Is that an accurate translation? Yes. Well, and that because we're going to talk about accurate translations in a second. Could be. Could very easily be. And, and, and he and he framed it. Okay. All right. So we get the uh, from T Tyndale. They actually then put together. <coughs> it's completed in 1611. And it's hard to, it's hard to uh, downplay the impact of the King James Version on the world. How many millions of people have found the Savior through the King James Bible? Okay? Just amazing how well, how beautiful. It is the most poetic. It, uh, it is the most powerful. And it is also the most ancient. <laughs> because we're, what, we're, what we get in King James one of the reasons it's beautiful is it was completed in 1611. It's in the King. It's in the 1611 language. Okay, and it's amazing how well that is held up, isn't it? It says again the inspiration, the power of inspiration to, to guide them. Okay, now 
That, but that is good and it's a bit rough at times. That means for all of the power of the King James, the fact that we don't read uh, 1600 uh, Middle English makes it sometimes a little bit tougher to understand exactly what was in the prophet's mind. Uh, so, so what's happened over the, the centuries is that um, there was a battle in trying to come to understand uh, the Bible. Now, the, the, let me add one more piece, though. Um, if you are if, if you're breaking away from the Catholic Church, and you are Luther, and you're Calvin, and you're the Reformers, okay? Spengler. Spengler, yes. There are all of these people, they, and, and they finally recognize they don't want the church to have this kind of control. They think the church has gone few. We need to have our own. We're now getting our own, the Bible. Okay? They had a problem. Luther had a particular problem with, if I'm going to break away from the church, there is a problem. And it has to do with authority. If you're going to break away from the Catholic Church, in the Catholic Church, who has the authority? The priest. Where did they get it from? Yeah, it goes all the way back to the Pope. Where did the Pope get it from? Peter. From Peter. From God. And so there's a, there's a chain of command. There's a, a link of authority that they can tie back. There's a line of authority they can say, this is where we get our authority from. Okay? What happens if you're Luther and Calvin and those guys and they're saying, we're going to break away from all that? Now you've lost the authority. So you've got to shift where you get your authority from. Because it can't be from a priest. How can a common minister, where is a common minister going to get his authority to be a minister? From God through what? For the Holy Ghost. From the Scripture. That's right. So here's, here's the deal. And Joseph Smith swims in this world. He studied the KJV, but he really understood what is called in Latin, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura means the, authorities are, the, the authority is in the scriptures. I don't have to have authority because I have God's word. Think about your evangelical friends. I have God's word. This is God speaking to me and, and not just not just having uh, the scriptures, but it's called the priesthood of believers. I have the priesthood by virtue of the fact that I have God's word. Now, that paints them a little bit into a corner. There's a problem with that. Because they'll quote from Galatians, especially if we're going to come up with the Book of Mormon, and their pushback against the Book of Mormon is what? You can't add or take away, quoting Galatians, you can't add or take away from God's word. The Deuteronomy does the same thing. Oh, it totally does. But we're going to look past that. Okay. But because there is a threat here that says, what we're doing, if you're going to take away sola scriptura, that all the authorities in the Bible, now everything is thrown up a little bit, we're not quite sure where we go from there. The day the Book of Mormon came out, there was an ed editorial in the New York Times that says, uh, it said basically, a most damnable thing has never come into the eyes of men than the Book of Mormon. And then, then the next line is, we don't yet have a copy of it. 
It wasn't what was in the Book of Mormon. It was that there was scripture outside of Sola Scriptura. And that throws the authority, that throws all the problems, and that's why you can't add or take away anything from the Bible. Even though the Bible, well, I'll show you in a second, has a forgery in it. The first John. Okay? Study the KJV. He understood Sola Scriptura. So imagine, so he understood this is God's word. This is what he would have heard in the Methodist Church. This is what he would have heard from Reverend Lane. It's about God's word. Dang it, don't change it. Imagine his shock. In September, 1827, when Moroni quotes, when he comes to him to talk about the Book of Mormon, and he quotes scripture, he quotes Malachi. But what does he do? And, and Joseph says a little bit, when you read it, you don't know that he's necessarily writing it with surprise. But it really is with surprise. But he quoted it what? Differently. Differently. How did, wait a minute. How did you, in other words, the moment that Moroni was quoting that, he was actually challenging Sola Scriptura. You changed the Bible. And he quoted it. And, and, and not only that, so he's going to hear all those things from Moroni about saying, this is God's word. But with additional revelation and additional information, we can actually expand on what God's Word is and understand it more clearly. Especially if it's been poorly translated over the centuries, which sometimes it has been. So, uh, the church is organized in, in uh, 1830 in, uh, in April. Guess what Joseph is doing by summer of 1830? He's really, that's right. He's making changes to the King James Version. Yikes! That really is threatening the Sola Scriptura thing. Whoa! But, in fact, the book of Moses and all that, the old, he's starting in the Old Testament under God's direction to begin to, at certain points to update, rewrite, add more information to the King James Version. Wow! And then what we get in the Old Testament are these massive changes. The book of Moses, the book of Abraham. Um, uh, in fact, what actually is coming through in the Book of Mormon is making changes to the King James Version because you're getting similar things but with expansion. You're getting, you're getting Abinadi expounding on Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 and going, this is what it really means. You're getting Jacob in the second in Second Nephi, going, let me show you what this really means. I'm changing King James a bit, not replacing it, but giving it greater light, putting more knowledge on it. That make sense? Okay. So he's doing this uh, Old Testament, and then we now know that when he when he turns to the New Testament, uh, about ninety percent of the changes that he made in the New Testament, he's actually using. Uh, uh, commentary by Adam Clark uh, for for most of them. Okay, now there are some monumental changes. I'll show them to you in a second. Where Joseph in the New Testament in his in the Joseph Smith translation makes a major shift. Not Adam Clark. I think it's pure Joseph, pure revelation from God. Who's Adam Clark? Adam Clark was a uh, was a biblical commentary. Uh, it, he it published about 1800. 
Uh, and a lot of the changes that you see in the Joseph Smith translation of the New Testament are pretty well in lockstep with Adam Clark. And mo uh, uh, come on, in the New Testament, most, most of the, cho the changes Joseph made was like V to them or it to God. You know, it's just, it's pretty cosmetic. It's, we don't get the massive changes that we got in the Old Testament. Why? Because Joseph's life got really busy. <laughs> you know, and he's doing Zion's camp and he's, you know, he's running for his life. And he just didn't have as much time as he really wanted to to really cut. But he really wanted to make those changes. Then, by the way, he went, oh, you know what? I ought to have languages. So, oh, I got the Egyptian thing. Let's study Egyptian for a while. Man, we can't understand the Egyptian really well. We're just playing around with this Egyptian stuff. We need, we need to learn Hebrew. Because if I get Hebrew and I have that knowledge in my mind, the Lord can use that knowledge and my knowledge of Hebrew to now expand even further what I'm trying to read. So that's when he brings in uh, Joshua Satius, uh, just before they dedicate the temple, to learn Hebrew. And, and School of the Prophets starts by just kind of learning things generally, but now it's going to be like School of Languages. We're going to back off from Egyptian so we can learn Hebrew. Wow, that'd be cool. Because we're trying to understand this. And then ultimately <laughs> he will dabble a little bit in Greek and German. Like German. All right. So that is so that is Joseph. Uh, now, by the way, one other piece here. Isn't it interesting that in the uh, in in writing up our articles of faith to be published about what Mormons believe, by the time he gets to Nauvoo, look at what he's saying now about the Bible. He declared that we believe in the Bible what? As long as it is translated correctly. So what he's saying is. If we get more light and knowledge and revelation, we can actually expand what, it, what we have in terms of the Bible, and it will make more sense to us. But as oft times as it was being translated and retranslated, it wasn't always translated correctly. Um, without getting too complicated, I can tell you why it wasn't always translated correctly. The King James Version was put together by those with, with Calvinist Reformation backgrounds, and sometimes they changed words, and I'll show you that in a second. Okay. Um, this makes sense so far. Is this like history, heavy history? Yeah. Okay. All right. So that so that means then that uh, again, when we go back to how the King James was put together in the first place, uh, and they're going to go back to Greek, the original Greek, to try and come up with what was in the New Testament. They're going to work off of manuscripts. And they had a limited pool of Greek manuscripts in the 1600s. But, but the problem was, if we're going to do Matthew, one Greek manuscript will say this line, and another Greek manuscript will leave out that line. Another Greek will use this word, and another one will change it to another word. And they've just got all of this. And then they start, then you start throwing in Syrian texts and stuff like that. So, they, so one of the reasons they had to have a committee is, what are we going to put in that verse? Well, we've got, we've got five Greek manuscripts that say this, and one Greek manuscript that says this. We'll vote on it. We're going to go ahead and plug it. We'll use this. We'll do this. Okay? So sometimes it was simply about they're just making their best guess based on the Greek manuscripts. That okay? We'll talk about that in a second. Okay? All right. Now, Long comes Brigham Young. 
uh, and and when and we're going to talk a little bit about tonight about uh, uh, one of the things that's come out of here. This is the Thomas Wayment uh, BYU New Testament thing. Before he published it, he ran it by the brethren, and and, he, and, and we were listening to Thomas Wayment uh, this last year, and he said. Before, before this hit the presses at BYU, he got a message. He says, it wasn't from the blue chairs. It was one of the guys in the red chairs. <laughs> okay? Who wanted this quote put in the front of this book. And so if you, if you get this, you'll find that this quote by Brigham Young lives right at the front. Right, it's right in the very front, as as directed by somebody in the red chairs. Yeah. You can answer this question. It took Brigham two years to make a decision. I've never read anything that discusses that. Why it took him two years and what made the difference? Yeah. Yeah. We'll have a good con conversation about that. Let's do that. Okay. But here's Brigham Young's quote. He says. If the Bible be translated incorrectly, and he, and he believed that it had been, so at certain points, and as there's a scholar on the earth who professes to be Christian, and he can translate it any better than King James translators did, he's under obligation to do so, or the curse is upon him. <laughs> yeah. If I understood Greek and Hebrew, as some may profess to do, and I knew that the Bible was not corrected correctly translated, I should feel myself bound by the law of justice to the inhabitants of the earth to translate that which is incorrect and give it just as it was spoken anciently. Is that proper? Yes. I would be under obligation. That's quite a charge. To, to say so much of what we have is beautiful and accurate, but there are some inaccuracies in there, and if somebody with a knowledge of Greek and Hebrew that understands that can make those changes, it will clarify for us dramatically and make the Bible much more accessible to us. That would be suitable for the Yeah, it really would. Okay, so here we go. So what so what have we got now? Since 1611, here's the thing that's happened. Uh, there have been a discovery of thousands of new manuscripts. Um, Thomas Wayman says as he was putting this together, because he reads ancient Greek and he studies papyrus, he said he had in his, uh, he had in his, uh, he had access to about 5,000 Greek manuscripts, and, and when you throw in Syrian texts and stuff like that, about 20,000. So if you're not sure on a word, see the preponderance and the earliest manuscripts you can find and make it as accurate as possible. And then he also has the blessing of the Spirit, right? So, nice compliment. Okay? But there have been, since 1611, thousands of new manuscripts. Sometimes it's as small as a postage stamp. Sometimes it's much longer. Sometimes you get something like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which they obviously didn't have access to. The Dead Sea Scrolls was a printing house and publishing a lot, and so they had multiple copies of Isaiah scrolls, for instance. They would copy them and then send them out to the Essene community, but their job was to pull together. So we have access to the Dead Sea Scrolls that provided more data to him and to us, right? Um, 
a discoverer of a Bible forgery. Uh, because by studying, go, going back, you can actually find the Bible forgery that is actually in uh, 1 John 5. I'll show you in a sec. It's there. And a greater degree of scholarship, uh, understanding better uh, ancient Greek, the context, why it is this word was used as opposed to this. So now you have scholars that every year are pushing better and better and better scholarship on understanding what the ancient Greek meant. Okay? We all right with that? Okay? All right. So, what does that mean? Well, let me give you an example of how that is now rolling out in the church. Uh, anybody read Spanish? Okay? Uh, if you go to the church website, what it says is the, the Spanish Book of Mormon is the dignified language of the 1909 Renina Val Valera Spanish Bible, comparable to the King James Bible, but, look closely, has been conservatively modernized by replacing some of the outdated grammatical constructions and vocabulary whose meanings and acceptabilities have shifted. If you are, if you are a Spanish Latter-day Saint, are you reading the King James Version? No, you're not. The church in this sense said, you know what? There is a, there's a better or up-to-date version of the scriptures, and so we're going to base the Spanish Book of Mormon on this 1909 Spanish, and that has been conservatively modernized so that the language is, is easier to understand, doesn't take away the inspiration and guidance, it just says it clarifies it so it actually gets more inspiration and guidance as it's being translated better. Same for German. Does, I, I, I was going to check on German. Do you know what, what they're using for German? Yes, they're not using King James either. Guess who else isn't? Uh, if, you're, if you live in Brazil or Portugal, you're also not using the King James Version. It's going to sound like I'm slamming the King James Version. I'm not. I'm just saying that in order to have our ability to have access to spiritual truths that are in the Bible, if there's update, updating and we can take the King James as a, as a comparative kind of thing, we're going to understand the Bible better. So the, the LDS Bible in Portuguese is using a 1914 edition of the, the Almedia Bible. Not using King James. <coughs> So, the weird part about it is actually most of the church, percentage-wise, is not using the King James Version. Weird, huh? But we love the King James, and we should use the King James, but we should use it in comparison with other tools that I'm going to talk about in just a second. Okay? The only, you know, I was surprised in Switzerland that they weren't using the King James Version, because I had learned the church taught that it was divinely and I had never heard any commentary uh, I, I went back on my own research to look at that, and that comes from J. Reuben Clark. J. Reuben Clark was, even though there were other brethren that kind of disagreed with him at the moment, J. Reuben Clark wrote a thing saying, King James Bible, almost like Sola Scriptura. King James Bible is the only Bible we will use. It's the only one that's inspired. Everything else, don't use anything else. Um, now, we won't tell that to uh, Elder, er, Elder Uchtdorf, who has used other versions 
in, in his general conference books. But that was kind of the believing of the 50s, and I think it's, some of that has kind of kind of lingered. Yeah. Okay, now I got a question. Yeah. So, when they're presenting it, translating it into English, are they using the other Bible? The, the ones that I found, he didn't use the King James. Really? He was quoting from the NRSD. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. how they translated yeah. that into yeah. Spanish, I, 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 I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you about the NRSD in a second. The, I know I keep putting you off. The inaccuracy in the translation yeah. at that time, uh, mainly because they were doing their best, were yeah. doing it right, or was it could have been more uh, about control. Let, let, let me give you an example. Without getting really dead, let, let me give you an example. Um, and, and, and a simple example. It is uh, when when those that have, were more of the reformers or Calvinists, uh, and they are doing the translation when they're looking at it. The old Latin Vulgate might have said something about when you need to repent, give alms. Well, that giving alms, who would you give alms to? Priest, church. When when we got when we got the new translation coming out of Tyndale, it says give thanks. Well, that's a subtle change. And in other words, we don't need to be giving alms to a church. We just give thanks to God, and that's part of why they were pushing back against the Vulgate because some of it was control. That's a big change. That's a that's a, that's a massive change. Read and write, you were put to death. Yeah. So it's no. There's a lot of control. Lot of control here. A lot of things. Okay. So uh, anyway, this the Portuguese text went through a conservative revision, aiming at modernizing grammar vocabulary, in which there was a change in meaning and acceptability. The church has been doing this for a while. They just haven't done it yet in English. Uh, the first way that we're getting this, I think, uh, is probably Weymouth's that is BYU and Deseret Book uh, published. Uh, so let me give you an example of why I think that, that becomes important. Because uh, there are a number of study guides, if we're just going to be reading the Bible, and we're simply going to be relying on the King James Version, we'll do pretty well. But I think we're going to be missing something if we're not adding these these additional study guides. Um, I'll show you in a second the Blue Letter Bible, which I love a lot. Uh, so does Wayman. Uh, Bible Hub is another one for, for being able to compare different versions. Uh, this new Bible by Wayman uh, that just came out uh, this last year and a half. Uh, and then there are going to be things like the NRSV and NIV, and these are like the new standard versions, but they are, but these are One's being done by scholars drawing on Greek manuscripts. Now, I can look at some of those and I can say, I can see where you went wrong on this. i got to use inspiration, use King James, use Wayman. But man, most of the, I, I use the NRSV a lot. I, I just find it incredibly helpful. Um, but let, let me give you an example why I think this matters. No, I'm, throwing, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to whet your appetite a little bit for saying maybe we could find some other ways of doing this. We just want to know how to understand Isaiah. 
Oh, oh, let me get, let me get even closer to that If you, if you talk to most evangelicals, uh, what part of the New Testament do they love the most? They like Revelation, but in general, no. They love the writings of Paul. They love Paul. God, in fact, I was listening to one just the other day who was talking about the fact, he says, as, as, and he's evangelical, he says, as an evangelical, we love the writings of Paul and we use the Gospels for little illustrated stories. But we find the Gospel in Paul and in the writings of Paul. How much of you love digging, digging through Romans and digging through... Yeah, that's what I <laughs> Romans is as dense to get through as Isaiah is. Oh, I love Romans. But let me, but, but let me, but let me give you an example. I'm, I'm, I'm going to use this, okay? All right, so here, here, here's an example. Example of clarity. Um, all right, Brett, you're right there. Why don't you read this? This is, this is uh, Romans 7.15. You want to read this one for me? son was was standing right next to us and he went oh I didn't understand that one well we got to get that book <laughs> and so and, the, and guess what they end up using in their come follow me the rest of them mm -hmm. that they were using this 
Because suddenly as teenagers, even they can understand that. Okay? Um, by the way, there is, there is one more line in here. Let's go back to the Book of Mormon thing. Fascinating. The next line in Romans is, wretched man that I am. Oh, wait, we've heard that one. It's in the Psalm of Nephi, right? Who will rescue me from this body of death? <coughs> but that reads as someone who is conflicted. Absolutely. Because the writing is like, oh, isn't it true? And see, that, that's why what, that just jumps out at me. I love that. Because if any of us have had a battle going on trying to do the right thing, we keep doing the wrong thing, and you listen to Paul and he's got, I got the same thing. We go, oh man, that guy's great. Now, if you're going to read, for that which I do not, I not allow, and I would not do, I not, but what I hate, that I, you go, you didn't even get that. But there was a beautiful lesson sitting in there, couched in 16th century King's English, that you would have missed. There's a, there's a reason for that, okay? Um, so, so, so let me give you another one. Different intent. 2 Thessalonians, which he's right, Paul is writing to a group of people who dearly loves. And they have accepted the gospel whole hog, and they are living kind of the law of consecration. Okay? Then he gets a word while he's, while he's in uh, Corinth that some of them are just kind of not doing a whole lot. They're waiting for the second coming, and they're kind of soaking <coughs> off other members. So, in the KJV, it says, For we hear that there are some which walk among you, disorderly, not working at all, but are busybodies. This is the way the King James vote wrote it. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Alright? So, have no company with him that you can shame him into kind of working, is basically what it's kind of saying. That's kind of the intent. Okay? Let me tell you what the, the Greek behind that actually uh, says in 2 Thessalonians. For we hear that some, and I love this phrase, it's so awesome. <laughs> For we love that some live among you without working, not actually working, but merely working. <laughs> Oh, oh. The, the, how, we could roll with that one for a while. <laughs> how many people do you know that aren't actually working, but they are nearly working? My teenagers. You were politicians. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you might have been married to somebody like that. They weren't really working, but they were nearly working. I'm thinking about working. I might be getting ready to work. I'm, I'm not quite there yet. I call it riding a stationary bike trying to go uphill. Yes. But I'm nearly working. I know. I, I, I'm pedaling, but you're in the so, so I love the fact, or I, in this case, we're nearly working, but because the second coming is coming right away, we don't really need to be working that hard. Okay? Now, listen to what Paul actually says, and the intent is completely different. But if anyone does not obey our instruction through this letter, take note of that person and do not associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Don't treat him in a way that would make him ashamed. Do not consider him an enemy, but exhort him as a brother. 
So if you had somebody that wasn't capable of their end of things, what's he say? Iron, what's he say? If you're gonna, don't associate with him in such a way so that he'll be ashamed. But it's <laughs> step it up. And maybe do that compassion and love. Right, and do it privately or not, don't embarrass him. Yeah, can, can you hear the difference? That's, that's a dramatic difference in this, guys. In being able to say, uh, if you take some love on them, but talk to them and let them know that nearly working is like nearly pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> or nearly dead, you know? It's, it's the same thought process as Joseph Smith laid out in Dr. Covenant 121. Yeah. And reproving when moved on by the Holy Ghost, but afterward showing toward the That's right. So you're going to tell them that they need to step it up, but we will do it in such a way. See, this one just almost sounds like, just abandon the dude until he's really embarrassed and maybe he'll do it. That's shun. Shun him is probably in, yeah, right? So it's a, it's a discussion of righteousness. We love him, he's got to be working, but let's find a way to treat them with love, but get them to do what they need to do. So it's not the problem, it's how we address it. It's how we address it. And you get that in this version, you don't get that in the King James. Though that may have been the intent, so much of the content of what was going on in 16th you know, century England, the language just doesn't translate very well. So when you're trying to take the Greek and put it into words that we understand, my guess is, is that the Savior did not stand on the Mount of Beatitudes and speak Shakespeare's English. <laughs> Most likely. In, in fact, what, what we know from the book of Mark uh, is that he didn't even speak High Greek. And, and if he was ever speaking Greek, mostly speaking Aramaic, but if he was ever speaking Greek, it wasn't High Greek. It was Low Greek. So let me give you an example. The book of Mark, when they have kind of gone through and they've now translated this, and BYU has published this, and it, it's fantastic, we have the case where in the... Uh, Jesus turns to a man who has, a, who has an evil spirit. And, and, in, and in the King James Version, it says... He turns to him and he says, hold thy peace. You know what it actually says in Greek? Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. You know, you know. No, that's not how we picture. It's a demon, hold thy peace. You know, we have this sense and he's going, Shut up. <laughs> you know? So, anyway. Uh, let's see. Let's, 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 are, we, are we confident that the King James Version would have been understood properly in 1600 with that language? That's a really good question. Uh, Tom Wayman, I don't know where he got it from, but in my, in my discussions with him, he says in 1611, that language was even outdated for the people that were living, uh, even among the king's educated people, but certainly for the common people living in London in 1611, it was already over their head. So it was convoluted enough it would not have been understandable then. Absolutely. So even then they were still trying to pick through Isaiah. Okay? So everything that we can do to try and understand. So what do we, oh, we're all, uh, let me give you... Any no longer? Okay, let me give you... <laughs> Yeah, but you guys ate all the ribs. The night is young. There's chicken. Oh, there's chicken. What well, could be good? 
It is. Um, I, I wanted to show you a, a study guide that I like a lot. Um, is all of it on your website? I heard you mention there's a, you have a website. Yeah, a lot of times when I, I teach a Monday morning uh, institute class uh, for adults in Plano, um, and I and I always put my classes on, at kevinhinkley.com, both the audio and the and the PowerPoint. So it's like a podcast. Uh, so yeah, so it's done as a podcast, and I upload it to Apple, so it's done as a podcast. Um, but I'm going to do that the same thing with this one here. Um, when I when I'm looking at a uh, a quote in the Bible that I don't completely understand, I, this is called a blue letter Bible, and it is fantastic. What you do is you're going to put the verse in and the blue letter Bible. So let's take let's take one. Um, uh, I'll show you the forgery in a sec. Uh, John three sixteen, right? So if I go John three sixteen, probably the most quoted. Verse probably, actually, it's the second most quoted now. That's the only one I ever hear. I know. And even it's side side note. What what she said has generally been true. The most quoted verse in all the Bible in all the churches is. Uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right? It's now second quoted. You know what's number one? And it'll make sense to you. Judge not that you be not judged. Oh, goodness, because that's just rationalization of their own Yeah, that, that's, that's why. Judge not. Okay. Not that's that. not what we're talking about. Okay. Okay, so what happened when you go to the King James, I know it's kind of small, uh, it lists all the verses in, in that chapter, but then I click on a little thing off the side here called tools. And what tools does is it breaks down every single word in that verse. So, well, that's really bad, isn't it? Really hard to. Would it, make, would it help at all if I make it no, that's Maybe even better? Yeah, does that make it better or worse? It's worse. That's worse. Well, you you zoom in your screen. screen. On your laptop. Yeah, just make your zoom like. Well, when I, okay, let me, let me click on this and then hopefully it'll make it um, I'm going to pick a word like uh, only begotten. Okay? Mm -hmm. He gave his only begotten son. So if I click on only begotten uh, on this word right here, it's going to tell me uh, what the word is in Greek, since so the New Testament. It's going to pronounce it. Strong's G, 3439, monogenes, monogenes. Now you know what it sounds like in Greek. Uh, it's, it'll, it'll translate it for you. Uh, it tells you how it's used. Uh, it, it shows you every other place it comes up in the scriptures. That same word where it shows up, it just it's just really helpful for... Okay. Um, the other one I'll suggest to you really quick. Do you remember while you're doing that? Do you remember Infobase? Yeah. Oh, From the, it was the third party LDS. It was fantastic. Yeah, it was. And Deseret bought it. And because it was written in Microsoft, I actually called them to find out what happened to it. And they said because it's written in Microsoft code. Yeah. And it's changing all the time. They dropped it. They I, I used I used that for the longest I time because it. it was wonderful. Yeah. 
Okay, here's, here's another one that is that's being used by a lot of uh, LDS New Testament scholars, and it's called Bible Hub. So if you put in John 3.16 in the Bible Hub, it shows you all the different versions of, of how it's being used. So here's the, here's, it's not just the King James, but the New King James, and the, uh, uh, the NIV, the New International Version, is a good one. Uh, I remember I was just the NRSV, but um, anyway, it just gives you a chance to compare versions, uh, and then, and then with that, then I think you're armed to then listen to the Spirit and guide and direct you as to what what makes sense. But if it can clarify for you some of these things, I just I think that's a tremendous help. Okay. Um, oh. Bible forgery. Uh, 1 John, we know, not with the Bible forgery, not only do we know when it was, but we know why it was. When they look at the, uh, when they go, go back and they look at the old manuscript, there is, and I won't take a long time to do it here, but in 1 John, <laughs> I'm not going to find it, I'll bet. Oh, here it is. Okay. It is, uh, Wayne put it in his uh, footnotes. It is first, it, it is first John 5, because uh, he took it out, he actually took it out of his, but he footnotes it so everybody knows that it's there. It is first John 5, 7 and 8. Uh, a, uh, we have we have this, the uh, transcript, the, the manuscript from the Middle Ages, uh, where you can see it cross, where you can see them added into the, um, and I've seen a copy of this, added into the margin an additional line that wasn't there in the older manuscripts. And what they added was, um, it says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. And somewhere in the in the uh, 14th century, they added uh, uh, it adds in heaven the the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. They they added a Trinitarian line to it, and these and these are the three that testify on earth. And it wasn't there in the 12th century, and it wasn't there in the 10th century, but from that point on, in the King James people picked it up and threw it in there, but it was actually forged in the Middle Ages. So that's the kind of thing, so when you, so hopefully the newer translations are being able to say, we're going to identify that it's there, we know it's there, but recognize that it's a, it's a Middle Ages forgery that was added. Was that after the Nicene Council that that was Oh, added? long after. Okay. The Nicene is, is, is 325 and the scriptures are added about 360. This is 14th century. Okay. Why do you use the word forgery? 
Because it was added, it was added to the wasn't in the original manuscript. Why not just a mistranslation? Because it wasn't even there. They they actually took a line and dropped it in there that that the original author of First John didn't have. They forged a, another line. So they didn't even mistranslate it. They added it. It's an addition. So forgery is the best word for it. That's the word that most scholars use. This forgery because it was someone commentary. <laughs> and thus we see this commentary. Okay, uh, okay. Let, let, let me stop here. Uh, questions, comments, and then we will we will wrap this up. And where do you see this going? Here's what I here's that's a good question. I, I, I kind of think um, I, I know. For instance, in my here's my whole path. And in my Monday morning class, I'm using this almost exclusively. And and people and and most love people in my class have bought the book, and what they're telling me is that the scriptures, the New Testament, makes more sense to them, and they're enjoying it more. So where I'm hoping it goes, and we're going to see some other applications of this, I hope it makes the Bible both more readable, and what we, when we started out, we said there was a problem, right? How do you talk to other people in other churches? Right? That was the problem. Well, if you have a, a common language Bible, and, and even if you're quoting from here, I, they're not going to care because it makes sense. Now, if I'm, if if I'm going to talk to a, a Christian, I may pull out the NRSV or something like that. But, but every church that's out there, very, 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 very few are still using the King James. So if, even if you're quoting Queen James, it's still like speaking another language to them. It's, we need a common language because it makes more sense. Okay? And I love the King James. And I don't quit using the King James. I just look like with that, that verse in uh, Romans. I'm going to read the, I'm going to read Romans out of here. Is that available as a product format? It is. Yeah, so I use it. Uh, if I go to my if I go to my uh, I go to my uh, gospel library. You need to see all the books. Out there. Screenshot. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There it is. I'm also reading one on the Uh But yeah, that. But it, and it does. It works really well. I can use it to cut and paste and put on PowerPoints. But do other do other faith-based groups? Will they even listen to that? Versus, I mean, because I know a lot where I live. It's, I live in the South, and it is. Yeah. I, I mean, you walk in and they're quoting you verses. You know, but if they're quoting to you like from the new NIV, okay, you, I would read the NIV with them. There's nothing wrong with the NIV. Oh, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong. I'm just wondering is that widely accepted as the NIV? Is it? Is this, is, 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 no. Oh, bitch, no. Because, because it comes from a lot of states. Right, it comes from a lot of states. I know. If it has that LDS connotation, forget you. Listen, we're trying to just get this accepted in this church. Well, I was just trying to, I mean, I was trying to, get, <laughs> you know? I was just trying to get it straight in my mind. Like, I know, Did I, I know. miss the boat on it, that? It, it, what I would do, I would read the NIV with it. 
Then what I would do is I would come home and I would open this, I would look it in here, and then I would look into KJV. That, or if I'm still not sure, I would go to Bible Hub, I would go to Blue Letter Bible, so you really understand that verse better. You compare those all together, and then you get a sense of the verse. Now, are, let me just finish with this. Are there wacky versions out there? Gosh, oh my yes. God. Oh, oh, there are wacky versions. Of, we're going to do the gender-free Bible. Or we're going to do the, you know, the whatever it is. These are not the wacky Bibles. The, the NRSV, the NIV, the Wayman version, these are ones based on the original Greek, and, and you're seeing general authorities beginning to, to use them. So I guess what I'm saying is in the future, I think we will see a, a trend more towards that. Because it's already happened with Spanish and Portuguese and German, saying we have to have, we have, to have scriptures that our teenagers will read. So do you see us ever replacing the King James no. as the English version? No, I think it'll be there. I just think we're going to see ourselves using more of these. Um, but for instance, how many of anybody started reading the new uh, Saints 2? <coughs> okay, they, they just came out, you download it? Okay. A uh, couple of things about Saints. Anybody, how many read Saints 1? Or so, okay. Okay. You know who wrote Saints 1? When, when, they, when they put the editors together, they were pulled together to write the history of the Latter-day Saints. Guess who they didn't go to? The historians. They got the information. Saints 1 and 2 was written by screenwriters and English majors to be able to put it at a level of language and readability so that we'll read it, especially our teens. We have to have scriptures that are readable before we'll read them and use them and apply them. If you're going to try and work your way through Romans and King James, you're going to have a hard time finding the nuggets. Get it. It's hard work. You can do it. But man, when it starts to be clear, it blesses our lives. I agree with that because with the Book of Mormon this year, I have a child that has, uh, she's a visual learner. So the words on the page just might as well be literally in Greek. You know? That's right. But, but that, if we can, right. do, we can do the Book of Mormon videos that kind of recaps, that ties in to where she can grasp what it, the, the word and that, is. And that now it means something. It means a lot. The, rather than like, 6 a.m. trying to chug through Isaiah and King James. It's pretty tough. Yeah, because with seminary, tough, that's what we would have to do for her, is we're going to have to add and adapt. Brothers and sisters, I bury my testimony. I love the Bible, uh, and I, I love the things that are contained, and the more we drink from it, the more powerful it is. And when we understand what's going on in the Bible, the Bible, to me, fires up the Book of Mormon. And conversely, if I understand the Book of Mormon, I should be able to go in and look to the travels of Paul and understand exactly what Paul is doing in Corinth or Ephesus. But if I don't get it, if, I'm not, if I have a hard time with it, I'll miss that link. So I bear my testimony that the Lord's working behind the scenes to make all of this more readable for us, and I'm grateful to be living at this time when we're able to watch that happen. I think that's what you in Jesus' name. Thank you. So just a couple of things. Roll over the chairs when you get done. Just kind of stack them right here. Be great. And then you 